I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. Amy Seafelt set up and runs the Centre for Imagination at an international boarding school in the foothills of the Himalayas in India called Woodstock. As I begin exploring what education would look like if it were underpinned by imagination, and if young people emerged from it with their imaginations fully formed, empowered and vibrant, I was keen to hear her experience of creating, in effect, an outpost for the imagination within an existing school. Amy took a year out of teaching to study at Schumacher College, and her thesis, Centering the Ecological Imagination, documents her process of dreaming and planning the Centre for Imagination. I started by asking Amy what, for her, is imagination and how does it differ from creativity and innovation? Well, as we were thinking about creating this Centre for Imagination, we were throwing around words like creativity and innovation first. And I felt like uh, innovation is too tech-limited. Tech uh, it has a lot of tech connotations right away. Creativity now, in in education circles anyway, there's a lot of literature around how to teach creativity and that's not really what I was interested in. For me what I was really looking for as an educator is a source of hope and a future future direction and uh, I think imagination has a lot to do with hope and possibility um, and believing that there's more beyond the horizon uh, so that's one element of it. And then another big piece that I see lacking in a lot of, well, in many different fields, not just education, is uh, empathy. And I think imagination is at the core of empathy. Um, I don't know if you've read Graham Greene's Brighton Rock, but um, the villain is a villain because he has no imagination. He can't imagine how other people experience the world and life. Um, so I think... Those pieces of possibility and empathy, for me, are central to imagination. Believing that there's always another way. Yeah. How would you evaluate the the state of health of our collective imagination, of imagination in in in, in our culture in 2018? Impoverished for the most part. Uh, I think we're used to being fed a lot, uh, and we're also we learn. Uh, from a really young age in the way that education functions, uh, we learn that many things are not possible. So we're often told this is the way to do something, learn the way to do it, and then you do it that way. So right from the beginning, one of the really interesting experiences for me in creating this center has been when students come with an idea or a question and I say yes, they're shocked. Like, really, I can do that? I can make, I can try to build this? Really? Um, sure, why not? So I think the lack of imagination is also somehow deeply connected to a lack of confidence. And I think that starts from a really young. And I think we're all addicted to screens as well. That, that plays a big role in it. Surely, you know, some people would say, you know, you now have in your hand this phone and you can use it. You can make your own films and you can edit your own art and you can make beautiful pictures and you can put them online and everyone can say how much they love them. And... Uh, yeah. You know, so what, how, in what way, from your perspective, do those technologies, what, what impact do they have on, on the imagination? 
Well, I mean, on the one hand, like I have a student right now who's working on creating a, a pyrolysis system for the school so that we could break down plastics in a microwave oven and turn them into oil that could then be distributed to local communities to use for heat during the winter. And he's found all kinds of help online. So I would never say that, that we don't need that technology. I think that we do. And it assisted him. But he had to imagine the solution before he went looking for it, uh, where I think often people use it. Here, here again, I think it's connected to empathy in a way. People use it as an anodyne, that they're afraid to look at the world that actually is because of the trouble that it's in. And so you sit and you role play online or you watch, uh, binge watch series for hours and hours and hours as a way to avoid looking at what's actually around. And I think the only way we can imagine new ways forward is to look at what's actually around and figure out what's happening and watch it carefully. Um, so I think those technologies limit us when they're designed to addict us and we use them as painkillers kind of. Can you tell us about the Center for Imagination? Where did how did it come about? Did it already exist? Did you yeah, what what's its genesis and what are you trying to do with it? So the original idea was born about 4 years ago. Uh, I had been the academic dean here uh, for about six years. So I, I was in charge of the curriculum and teaching and learning. And I became increasingly frustrated because I felt like uh, a lot of change was necessary. And the way that schools function in terms of you take this subject and then this subject and this subject and you move around through the day, um, that, that kind of system can only be tweaked so much. So I was getting frustrated about that. And then I was noticing that my most valuable interactions with students were happening uh, kind of between the cracks of the school day instead of being the substance of the education. Um, so the real questions about what am I going to do with my life uh, were happening in little corners in between. And I just became increasingly convinced that if, if education doesn't help young people find their place in the world, then really what is it? What is it for if they don't know themselves and the world and how those things fit together better? So we began to talk about what would it look like to create a space where we could help young people figure out their place in the world, uh, which is kind of the core mission of the Center for Imagination and imagining new ways of learning, basically. Uh, so we took what's the oldest building on campus. It's an old bungalow that was built for British people in the early 1800s who came hunting here uh, as a guest house. And it had been a staff home. And we moved into that space uh, two years ago. And now it consists of basically three streams. Uh, so one stream is we invite in scholars, artists, residents, um, professional, mid-career professionals, uh, lawyers or doctors who have just retired, they come for three to six weeks at a time. So right now we have an anthropologist here and an environmental engineer. And they just spend a few weeks uh, with a very light programmed agenda and then uh, a project that they're working on. And the space just kind of fills organically as people connect and begin to ask them questions and learn about what they do. So that's one stream. Uh, another stream is um, student independent projects. Uh, so any idea or initiative that a student has, just trying to figure out how, how can we make it happen for them. 
uh, and facilitate that. So freeing them up, freeing their imagination. Uh, and then the third stream is creating uh, events and workshops and series that help young people understand what's happening in the world right now uh, on many, many different levels. We did everything from screen election results as the Trump election happened um, through the day, which was incredibly depressing, <laughs> to film screenings, discussions about current events. Uh, even we had a problem with bullying, and we ended up facilitating a discussion between the bulliers and the bullied uh, in a new way to try to introduce principles of restorative justice to the community, holding workshops in dorms around mental health, teaching gardening workshops. That's one thing that's happening right now, workshops on how students can grow food in their dorm rooms. So just trying to be very responsive to whatever is happening and alive in the world and in our community. And the filter is basically, will whatever we're doing help them know themselves and help them understand the world better and how those fit together? And how has that, how has that been uh, uh, received or kind of um, absorbed or welcomed in by the existing school establishment is it is it seen as a sort of uh, weird f are you seen as the I, sp I spoke to a woman in the, in Mexico who in in the in the government in Mexico City they have a, a ministry of imagination and okay. uh, and I said to her you know how are you viewed she said we're viewed as the weird department <laughs> I mean are yeah. you viewed as the weird department or are you viewed uh, with with, with definitely but and also uh, I think a lot of people had questions about who is this for. So I'm uh, trying to understand like which group of students is this for or which teachers is this for. Now, I think uh, much more this year. So the first year and a half were pretty hard. The last six months, it's been a huge uh, upswell of interest from students. So in the last year, we uh, a year ago, we had three student interns. Now we have 30 who all have specific things that they're working on around school. Uh, teachers are much more willing to have these uh, guests who come into their classrooms because they're trying to understand the value of that and how it makes the classroom learning real for students. But yeah, I'm definitely still seeing this kind of the, the odd one. But I think, I don't know, I have a lot of confidence that that's shifting and it's that's been really fun to watch, watch that happen. And now um, in the last week, uh, two schools here in India have contacted me to ask about a startup kit for a center for imagination, which I think is really exciting, which was the goal right from the beginning. How could we shift the whole, try anyway, to shift the whole mainstream paradigm? How, what does that look like and how could that, how could that work? Um, and I believe a lot in organic change and I'm excited to watch that happen. Yeah. So do you have any, any from your experience, do you have any advice for people who who might be looking to do something similar within a within a within you know, if if they're the person going into their school or they get that little break to some like they have an enlightened head teacher who says okay go on then we'll give it a go within a more conventional sort of education very much results driven sort of context okay. what 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 would you, what would your advice be for them having having traveled that road yourself well, I found the concept really hard to explain until I came across the Japanese idea of ikigai, a reason for being. So the idea that if you find what you love, what the world needs, 
what will help you make a living um, and what you're good at, then you've found kind of a reason for being. And people of any age who have come through, even the worst skeptics from the beginning, when they saw that idea, I think it resonates really deeply um, as something that's needed. Uh, yes, our young people do need that. They need to know what their reason for being is going to be uh, that they shape for themselves. I think putting that in the middle unlocked a lot. So before that, I would sort of be stumbling around trying to explain exactly what it was that we were trying to do. And somehow having that image, and it's a, di it's a diagram that's painted right by the front door now. Every visitor who comes sees it right away. And it's been really interesting to watch how many people stop and take a picture because it hits something for them as adults even that they are desiring. So I would say focus on focus on that and start small. And uh, where, where do you think that, that conventional mainstream education goes wrong in its handling of imagination? Part of my experience, at least, is that uh, everything is so dominated in education by the need to measure uh, that every kind of success must be measured uh, continuously. And students are always being measured. Teachers are always being measured. Uh, and I think teachers often feel very constricted by the, all the measurements that are in place around them. So I think that kind of mechanistic approach of measuring everything and standardizing everything is really powerful and, and constrains the imagination immensely. Like I had, a, I had a moment this summer, I was in an airport and realizing you could be in an airport in any any city of the world and you wouldn't know where you are because they all have the same stores and the same food outlets and there's nothing that tells you what what place you're in. And schools with massive global curriculums like the International Baccalaureate are the same way. Like we somehow believe that it's better to be standardized than it is to have a unique local identity. Uh, and I think not not paying attention to place is partly what creates a lack of imagination. And for you, what would how would you identify the the vital elements of creating a space in which imagination can flourish? Sort of holding that space. What 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 are the key aspects of that? Most importantly, I think a sense of at least for children, a sense of safety and being accepted, no matter what who they are or what their idea is. There's a lot of, I think we learn early not to say what we really mean, uh, not to ask the real question, to be afraid that whatever idea we have might be judged. So for me, it's been really important to create both physically and uh, emotionally a, a space where uh, people feel safe to say what they, what they really mean, um, that nothing bad is going to happen if they say if their idea doesn't work, it's not a big deal. We'll try another one. And that the space should feel calm and inviting. I think also, given where we are right now, I feel very strongly about this, that uh, natural materials are really important in creating a space for imagination to flourish. Uh, a lot of, before we opened this, I visited a lot of university centers for imagination and labs and that kind of thing. And um, a lot of people go for this all-white, sleek, futuristic 
um, feel. Uh, it's all plastic and steel. And I think something really different happens when people are surrounded by natural materials like stone and brick and wood and fabric textures, natural textures. Um, people just start to think differently. Uh, and there's a lot of research also to show that just putting plants in a room changes people's measure, speaking of measurement, uh, it, you can measurably change people's sense of attachment to the environment just by putting plants in a room. I think those things really matter if you're going to try to cultivate imagination. But safety first. That's come through in lots and lots of different things, actually, that I've that seems to be the kind of prerequisite, really, that people feel safe, I think. Um, a question that I've asked everybody that I've interviewed for this book was if you had been elected as the Prime Minister of India or are you from the US or from Canada? You know, if, if, if you were... Okay, so if, okay, so but if you if you were elected as the Prime Minister or the President of wherever it was where you were, and you had run on a platform of make this place imaginative again. So you so you had felt that this was a time in history when um, nurturing and rebuilding and reprioritizing imagination was the most important thing uh, above anything else rather than having a national innovation strategy like every government does we need a national imagination strategy and a really urgent reprioritizing of imagination and you ran on that platform you said we need it in politics in school in 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 polit in planning in everything what might you do once you were elected in your first hundred days in office where would you start that's a great question i think i would bring together people from wildly different fields to break out of their, uh, like people, especially within certain disciplines, develop these tracks, you know, like I think like a corporate person, I think like a, a social worker. Um, so I think I would try to create conversations at every level in small groups, but of mixed, mixed backgrounds, every way that I could mix it and try to create a container for a safe conversation for that, to release potential. I think that would be the first thing I would do, get people talking to each other somehow, who see things radically differently. Because I, I feel like that that seems to be what's missing more than anything else, is that there's a, such a great, I mean, I've been following American politics obsessively, and Indian politics also, and there's this incredible unwillingness to imagine from somebody else's viewpoint uh, and everybody's sure that they're right i don't think anything could can really change and people until people start really sitting down and doing the hard work of listening so that'd be the first thing and then i would look for one one small way to illustrate like one of the pieces that i've really learned is that people are skeptical until they've actually experienced something uh, of the essence of what we're trying to do. And as soon as they experience it, they say, oh, okay, now I get it, and become supportive. So on a national level, I'd have to think about what that would be, but it would be a fun fun project, yeah. From, from the research that you've done, what examples of imaginative education have you come across that most inspired you? Well, one really core person for me uh, two. Uh, one is uh, Parker Palmer, 
who's a Quaker educator. Uh, he wrote a book called To Know As We Are Known um, in the early 80s. And uh, he, he talks about how teaching is actually creating a space, a collaborative community space. And that's what you do when you teach more than anything else. Paulo Freire, I think, is a core core person for me around uh, privilege and who gets to speak when and how as an educator. Uh, and then a third one, he wasn't technically an educator, but for me, core, is uh, Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor, who wrote Man Search for Meaning. I've used that every year I teach, and without fail, like I hear back from students 15 or 20 years later that that's the book that they held on to. Um, so I think for education uh, around imagination, because it's a, he's very future focused. Um, the idea of asking what are what are you living for, what are you trying to do with your life, um, and crafting that kind of meaning. And then as I look around today, there's a school in Switzerland called École de Manité, which is a small progressive school that was started in the 40s. Uh, and they do continue to do some really interesting things. Um, it's a residential school where uh, children live in families with a couple. So instead of having dorms that are age-based, uh, they all run uh, like siblings, and they eat a meal together as a family each day. Um, and the work then that those kids do is pretty phenomenal. Here, right in the same town as us, there's a settlement of Tibetans, in exile, and some of what they do is really profound, working with children who have escaped across the border. Uh, so they, they have a system where uh, in every bunk bed, there's an older student on the top and a younger student on the bottom. And from the time the younger student arrives, it's the older student's responsibility to teach them everything about cooking. They have to cook all their own meals, cooking, cleaning, life, um, they're, they're bonded together. And then that younger student becomes an older sibling for a new student. And I think those kinds of relationships have created a really strong community that cares for each other. And I think that kind of thing doesn't happen in education very much. Yeah. There's a, split, a place called Mycelium in North Carolina that's really inspired me around social entrepreneurship. Um, they have really interesting ideas and run great programs. And then the last influence, I would say, is uh, some of the groups that are working around rites of passage and how our current model doesn't really help people know when they've become an adult and the responsibilities that that, that brings and what would it look like for us to have rites of passage. You mentioned that you, you, you talked about watching the, the Trump uh, election. I went. Why? Why? Why is it so important that we, in 2018, that we focus on imagination? Do you think? I think right now, like for me, the Trump election and subsequent events since then, it's just so incredibly grim and polarized. And I was a history teacher for 15 years, and just to see us repeat the same exact patterns over again is so incredibly depressing that I think uh, imagination is the rescue. We have to be able to think that there's another possibility and out of that comes resilience and working, working towards it. 
instead of just accepting, I guess this is how it is now. So I found myself in imagination finding a, a kind of activism that I never had before as I practice it more. I think when you practice imagination and try to put things, just keep trying things, you begin to develop more and more confidence that it's possible. It's not so, not so crazy that we could, to think that we could find another way forward and reverse some of the trajectories that we've been on for the last 150 years. Uh, you, you, you focus in your, in your, in the thesis you did, you, you you talked a lot about the, the the link between and you mentioned it earlier the link between imaginative education and ecology and nature. Oh uh, yeah. Why why is that link so important? What happens if we have an education where we don't have any access to nature? We don't learn about ecology. You know yeah. what what does that bring into your work of trying to nurture imagination that it, that, that wouldn't be possible otherwise? Just what I've seen since I came back uh, in the last couple of years of teaching, how powerful it is, and it happened to me. Uh, I think we are often raised to see ourselves as individuals and be able to imagine that we imagine that we are discrete units. Just regular observation of nature and teaching children to start looking at systems and their place in the system and having to... Now, I've done for three years the same project of having them visualize the school, so create a visual map of the school. And every year, each child's project is wildly different, but all of them come to this conclusion of we are completely interdependent. We can't separate ourselves. And once they see that, it changes the way they see everything else after that. So every issue that after they've understood truly understood interdependence, which I think takes imagination, then they begin to practice this idea that you can't separate any one thing out, the whole Gregory Bateson ecology of mind piece. Uh, and then I think that also informs all the way that they treat other people, the way that they handle their waste, the way that they consume. All of that is shaped then by this idea that I'm not my own separate entity. All that I do impacts everybody else no matter how far away that impact might be.